Good morning. Good morning. Glad you're here. Sure is lonely without you. Uh, go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we will begin in verse 10 and read through verse 18. And verse 18 is real important. Uh, we'll be starting with it. I'll, well, I'm going to overlap, use a little bit of that next week too. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 reads as follows. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that mur no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Jesus, we ask your blessing again, not only on our understanding of this passage. I think there was some stuff pretty clear there. Uh, you've, you've given us some understanding. Uh, it's not that we don't get it. It's that our, there's parts of our hearts that don't like it. So we pray for your mercy on us, Lord. We pray that, that we would love better, that we would love well, that we would not have a small or a cheap view of the love that you have called us to. But as we consider and see that the love with which Christ has loved us was expensive, that the love that we are called to express and display is also costly. So we, we do pray for your, your Holy Spirit to give us a, a real um, a spiritual understanding of these things, an actual understanding of these things, an understanding that would lead us to live out these truths. And God, we just pray for, for courage to obey the things that you're teaching us. It's for your glory that we're here. It's for your glory that we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I want to I wanna lead uh, with the end here. Um, let's not bury the lead. Uh, verse 18 is the key. Verse 18 there says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And, and in this verse, we have a sort of key to... John's theology. We have the theology behind John's theology. And it is an explanation of virtually all of his doctrine. Um, now, John, John wrote a lot. He is not a one-hit wonder. Okay, he's got the gospel. He's got revelation. He's got lots of good books. However, um, this, this is the song that's on repeat. Okay, little children, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. This is, this is what John says more than anything else. And this is what stuck in John's heart uh, from the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus said that stuck with John more than anything else. Love one another. This was the new commandment that was also an old commandment that he talked about in chapter 2. That was kind of fun and confusing, right? The new commandment, that's the old commandment, that's the old commandment, that's a new commandment, same commandment, love one another. Um, and of course, before that, we, we saw this in the Gospel of John, which we studied before 1 John. Uh, we, 
We get, we get it from the letters of John. We'll see it in second and third as well in, in various ways. And we even see this one command uh, in the tone that John uses. He says, my little children. You know, that's a far cry from, oh, foolish Galatians that we read about somewhere else. You know, like, kids, kids, kids. That's how John welcomes his family. He talks to his family. John cares about these relationships. Fellowship is a big theme for him in, in his writings. Um, and, and he writes... He never misses an opportunity to write about how Christians have to love each other. Of course, you guys know this. This better not be news. Um, you know, and even John's readers at this point are probably rolling their eyes because it's all he ever talks about. And they've heard it before. Uh, but we, we can know that and then not know it. You know, you can know something that doesn't ever really work its way into your heart, the way you live, the way you make your decisions. And this, the cheapening of love um, had already begun by the time John wrote these things. I think Hallmark had already been making movies at this time for a while. Um, I think this, this sickeningly sweet greeting card excuse for love had already infiltrated the solid and substantial love that looks more like a cross than anything else. And, and John was aware that, that you could say, oh, I love them, I, lo I love them. And he's like, no, I, I need to remind you what it looks like. It looks like crucifixion. Um, people, people had been softening the rough edges, the expensive part of love, ever since Cain and Abel, who are mentioned in this pas passage, interestingly enough. The Cain offered a bloodless sacrifice, and it was the evil deed that led to a bloody murder. And John is going to preach his one message, right? His one message. He's going to tell people, love one another. But in verse 18, we're, we're delivered from any sort of saccharine Valentine's Day mush and reminded this isn't about sentimental poetry, people. It's not a thing that you talk about only. Uh, telling someone that you love them is nice or convincing yourself that you love someone may not be a bad thing, but that in and of itself is not loving at all. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. When we are called to love one another, we are called to action. And the action is of laying down your life for the sake of another person who doesn't deserve it. That's what John is calling us to. So back in verse 10, rewind. In verse 10, he says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And this talk about the devil should remind you of the last verses that we ended with last week. Um, remember, John was talking in the first part of this chapter about living in righteousness and about how the hope of Christ's coming will lead you to purify yourself and that it's impossible to keep on sinning. It's impossible to stay in a lifestyle of habitual sin while at the same time making your home in Christ and putting down roots with Christ. And when he talks about sin, he said something really, really hard, followed by something really, really good, which is very gospelly of him, I think. In verse 8, he had said, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Ouch, that hurts. Then the good news. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Oh, praise the Lord. Yes and amen. And he says, yes, the person continuing in these, this unrepentant sin is playing in the, on the devil's team. They're doing the will of Satan. Satan has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay? He has plans for you. And he has, a, he has a job for you to do. And he says there's people playing on his team. 
That's the bad news. Good news, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The line has been drawn, it's been very clear. It's been clear from chapter one. There's light, there's darkness, the two don't mix. There's truth, and then there is error. There are lies, and the people that tell them. There's in Christ, abiding in him, putting down roots, and then there's the world. Don't love the world, you love those who are in Christ. There's the true anointing, and then there's the anti-Christ that we talked about a few weeks back. There's good doctrine and bad doctrine. There's been this dividing line that John has been drawing through the whole book. And now he's saying, hey, there's, there's a family that you guys are in. That's God's family. That's why we call him Father. And then there's Satan's family, and he's got his kids doing his stuff too. There's, there's the children of God, and then there's the children of the devil. And John is saying it's actually pretty easy to tell them apart in the long run if you try. If, if the person is not practicing righteousness, they're not on your team. They're not your family. The guy who doesn't love his brother, um, he's not a child of God. Or at least he's acting like he's disowned his family. Right? Now these words can hit hard. Good. I think they're supposed to. Let them. I'm not going to make excuses for what John is writing to the church. Right? If they hurt, then, then I'm going to let that be the way it lands. John is a book full, First John is a book full of opportunities to examine your own hearts. Are you doing the work of God? Is there family resemblance between you and your father? Are you loving your brothers and sisters? Easy questions. You do not need a college degree to understand this Bible study, okay? Super simple questions, really hard answers. John is presenting something that might be more simple than we wish. We like the gray areas because those are called loopholes, right? And compromises. And John says, hey, people, can you, can you tell by looking at the way you live that you're in God's family? People can tell. People can look at you. They can tell who your family is. They're not blind. The person who does evil and hates people, who do you think they're following? Jesus or Satan? Now, Jesus does talk about the wheat and the tares, right? Which may be uh, coming up in some of your minds because you like gray areas and you want the loophole. Okay, so uh, the wheat and the tares. I, this idea of the false converts, that's a real thing. It's a scary thing. It, it's a real thing throughout the New Testament. But those stories, the wheat and the tares, you know, and you can't tell the difference, that is always about unbelievers appearing for a time, perhaps even a long time, like they are believers. That's always the case. And it's never, ever about a believer who is disguised as an unbeliever. That doesn't show up in the parables. Wheat who are pretending to be tares, that doesn't happen. That's never the way it shows up in the stories. There is evidence, there is verifiable evidence in a believer that shows what and who they are. The evidence of new life is love. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. In other words, when you're asking, how do I know? How do I know I'm even, well, because you love the church. You never liked those people before, right? Like you couldn't stand Christians. No one can stand Christians except Christians. That's, that's your litmus test, okay? You guys still hang out with us every week. Okay, that's proof of something. Um, okay, he, he, says, he says, don't marvel that the world hates you. And, and you know that you love, you love each other and that, that's how you know you've passed from death to life. Loving Christians is the evidence of your resurrection, your new life in Christ. And when it says, don't be surprised when the world hates you, he's not referring at this point to any sort of thing deserving of hatred that Christians were doing. 
right? Like, oh, your behavior is just so abhorrent to all your neighbors. So don't be surprised when they hate you. He says, don't be surprised when the world hates you because that's just what the world does. That's, that's the darkness side of the line is, is hating the things of the light. Um, hating people, hating God and his family is what the world, the, the demonic system, it's just what it does. It's natural. But you're not natural. That's the point. You're supernatural. You haven't been born into the world. You've been born again to a new and living hope. And again, the evidence of this supernatural work of the Spirit of God in your heart is the love that the Holy Spirit pours out into your hearts from Romans chapter 5. It's the love that you have and the love that you show specifically for brothers and sisters in the church. We can't try and get around this, this metaphor that comes up throughout Scripture of being identified by your fruit. Jesus said the, the tree is shown by its fruit. John the Baptist says the same thing. James says the same thing. When we talk about God knowing the heart as if the heart is somehow disconnected from actions, uh, we do a disservice to scripture. Also, if you're really, really wanting to defend yourself or someone saying, well, God knows, God knows my heart, you might want to rethink that defense since the scripture doesn't talk about man's heart in the most glowing, flattering terms. It is impossible, according to scripture, it is impossible for a good tree to bear bad fruit. The fruit reflects a problem in, in the soil and the roots, okay? There's a problem somewhere else. There's a reason why there's bad fruit being born. It's foolish to see a fruitless, dry, withered tree and then call it a misunderstood tree that's really actually good deep down. That's not how trees work. Okay? The Holy Spirit of God has decided to make his home in you. The Holy Spirit will produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The category of love that John is talking about is specifically the love that you have for the church, for other believers, for your brothers and sisters, for your new family, your dysfunctional family that loves you. That leads us back, of course, to John's great big one idea. Okay, verse 11 says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And we're like, we know, John. Now, what beginning is he talking about? I mean, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, that goes all the way back to Moses. So he could be talking about that beginning. Uh, in verse 12, he contrasts this idea of love with murder of Abel at the hands of his brother Cain. So he could be alluding to an even earlier beginning, going all the way back to the beginning of the beginning. Of course, the new and improved version of this command comes from Christ in the upper room. Love one another even as I have loved you. That's, that's a bigger ask. That's an upgrade. So the beginning could refer to the beginning of Christianity as we know it with the Last Supper, the washing of the feet. Um, but he's telling the church, you've heard this from the beginning. And some of the recipients of this letter um, you know, were probably Gentiles who didn't know the law of Moses real well. And anyway, none of them except John were in the upper room when Jesus gave the command. So John says, you have heard this. You Christians receiving this letter, you've heard this from the beginning, the beginning of their faith. For John, I believe this wasn't this idea of loving one another was not just the cent uh, just central to the life of the mature Christian. It was foundational for the new believer, for the convert. It was something you heard from day one 
that was drilled into you right there with whatever the equivalent to the sinner's prayer was then, right? Instead of John 3, 16 being memorized, you know, as early as possible, you memorized love one another. And you didn't have to work to put that to memory because the reason you came to faith was probably because you saw Christians loving each other. That was, that was what was going on in John's day. The, the Christian mission statement was love one another. They had heard it from the beginning. You know, the, all the essentials. Jesus is God. Jesus died for your sins. If you confess your sins, he forgives you. Good. Okay, is that all? No. One more thing. Love one another. You've heard this from the beginning. It is because this principle is so essential, so foundational to the Christian faith that John can say, if you're not loving your brother, then like, what are you even? Like, that's our only thing. That's our one big thing as Christians. We love each other. Like, that is the doctrine of how we live together. It's loving one another. So if you're going to, like, take all the other stuff and be like, Jesus was cool. I like the resurrection thing. My cross necklace is really, really pretty. But you don't want to do the love. Like, you have your own religion. You've made up something else. It's completely different, but it's not Christianity. Because Christianity, at its basic essence in practice, is loving one another. For him, after the, the doctrinal statements of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the one thing of, well, what do I do about it now? Well, believe and be baptized. That's been since Pentecost, right? And then love one another. This isn't optional. Now, this is not to say he is not honest about mistakes and lapses in love. We've talked about how John is very honest about including himself in that group called Sinners. We also kind of poked fun at the bad doctrine of sinless perfection um, before, where, you know, I'm sure some of you are perfect, but um, I'm not. John knows that mistakes are made. He knows, when, he knows they're made. He knows that he makes them. But just as he is so confident that we're a bunch of sinners saved by grace, he is equally confident, or more so, that the God who loves us is changing us into loving people. John is so sure of that. It's evident that John knows we forget. He knows we fall into selfishness. That's why he's reminding people to love one another. Because we forget. It wasn't because John was senile at this point and could only remember one sermon. Okay? He says it over and over and over and over again because he knows we're so stinking bad at it. Okay? We forget. You've heard the story of John being carried into the church in Ephesus in his last years as the last surviving apostle, unable even to walk, but still able to preach this one sermon. My little children love one another. Now, if they were all perfectly loving all the time, they wouldn't need the apostle to come in week after week and remind them. He's reminding them knowing that they're forgetful, but also not excusing any failures. Loving one another is essential, and it is actually the essential characteristic, the essential observable characteristic of a Christian. Right? Because you can't see the faith in their hearts. You can't see what they believe about Jesus, but you can see if someone loves people. Now, in verse 12, he goes to kind of an extreme, what seems to be maybe overstepping and contrasting love with murder, right? And it only seems extreme because, like I mentioned, we've cheapened the idea of love to be warm fuzzies rather than the kind of love that John believes in. So in verse 12, he says, Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, it, this can seem like an exaggeration, right? It's like, okay, you should love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we all say, yeah, okay. 
And then, then it's like John says, because when you don't, when you're not really loving, you, you really remind me of the kind of person that would slaughter their own family. And you're like, what? But like, that's what Cain did. He killed his own brother, hid the body. That's what, that's what you're like when you're not loving. Really? Now this is a riff on what Jesus himself said about hate in the Sermon on the Mount. The one who hates his brother is as guilty as a murderer. And we think, well, not loving someone isn't the same as hating them, much less murdering them, but it's the trajectory that we're measuring here. It's the same trajectory. Denying someone the love of Christ is on the way to hating them, which is on the way to murder. And this is what John starts, uh, it's what he says starting at the end of verse 15, uh, 14 and into verse 15. It says, he, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's hard for us uh, sometimes to follow the logic from not loving someone to being their murderer, right? It's, it's similar to the, the priest and the Levite and the parable of the Good Samaritan, though, who, who walk on the other side of the road. By neglecting the dying, they are killing. And we tell ourselves that it's just minding our own business. But in Scripture, we see that love is active. And the insidious thing about hate is that it can be passive. Just keep walking. Just avoid. Just move along. Your conscience probably won't even feel a thing. And John is saying that it is easier to murder this way than to love that way. This passive hate contrasted with Christ's active love it comes into this clear focus in the next verses. Verse 16 says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. That's what love looks like. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what our love is supposed to look like. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And sometimes that's what our excuse for love looks like. Jesus doesn't just walk by you. Jesus never stopped at just minding his own business. Man, this stuff is good. In verse 1 of chapter 3, in verse 1 of chapter 3 said, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. And that's like John's wow statement. He's like, wow, are you seeing this, guys? Look at this kind of love. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. He's not a God that walks by or just leaves you in the gutter. He loves you actively. Look at the love of Jesus. We know that John knows Jesus really well. They're best friends. Uh, that's how he started the letter. But I think John knows people pretty well too. He knows that when he says love each other, people will immediately start justifying, minimizing, making excuses. It's like, well, I don't not love them. So that's like basically loving-ish. And John says, no, that's not love. Not love. Apathy is not the same as love. It, it, not loving them is like killing them. So there's that. It, or, or we'll say, well, I was nice. I was nice to this person. I've been nice. And I do enjoy their company. I think they laughed at something I said once. So we're good. I'm a super loving person. And John says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what love is. By this we know love. Because he, Jesus lay down his life for us. Crucifixion is the standard for love. 
That's it. There's no entry-level stuff before that. What this means is that love, as John defines it, is not in it's not innate. It's not um, the definition of love is not intuitive. It is it, it isn't just something you grow up into as as a person. It is learned from an encounter with the cross. Biblical love is learned at the cross. When John says love each other, he says lay down your lives for each other. You know, Jesus makes this clear. He says no one's going to lay down their life for even a righteous man. That's not normal. He says that's not normal, but this is what I'm calling you to. It's something that's not natural. It's supernatural. We're using my definitions now. And love means dying. Again, this is taken straight from Jesus. These were Christ's words that left such a mark on John as a young man. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 11, it says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Now that should sound like what John wrote in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I'm writing to you that your joy may be full. So John is definitely picking up where Jesus left off, right? And then in uh, the John, Gospel of John passage, verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And then in verse 17, he says, These things I command you, that you love one another. This is love, laying down your life. That's what John is writing now in his letter. He says, he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Ultimately, Jesus did this on the cross and we are told to model our lives after the cross. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Paul says that we are crucified with him. That is our form of death. And then Paul writes, I die daily. He returns to the cross every day. We return to the cross of Jesus. We reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, alive to righteousness. This includes the sin of selfishness, the sins of the apathetic sins that we can excuse easily. This includes the, the unloving attitudes and the hatred, which is ultimately murder. We see ourselves as crucified to those things, dead to the world and the world dead to me. So we, we die to ourselves. We deny ourselves and follow Jesus. Where? Where he went? To the cross. And then where else? Where else did Jesus go? He, he goes to people who are hungry and hurting and wanting more of God. So we follow him there. The night when Jesus said, this is love, laying down your life, and then he commands the disciples, do it, love each other. It was the night when Jesus washed their feet. In John 13, John 13, verse 12, it says, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So when Jesus said, Love each other, this is the framework already in place. Laying down your life. This is sort of a live-action model to refer to. When Jesus washed feet, he was laying down his life, not in the same way as he did on the cross. Um, they are not simply interchangeable, but there's, um, but certainly in a cross-like way, he's laying down his life. In washing feet, Christ was taking the role of a slave. In washing feet, like on the cross, he was laying aside any semblance of glory, taking the utmost humility. Both the cross and the wash basin are acts of lowly service, sacrificing something of yourself for the benefit of another. We won't die for anyone's sins, but we're still told to take up the cross. How? 
by washing feet. Not literally perhaps, but the equivalent now is the taking the lowliest place, the worst job for free. Serve others at great cost to yourself. Put aside your agenda, your resources, your energy in serving another person. Um, perhaps even a person who in your mind is not worthy of your time and energy. Jesus washed the feet of Judas as well as John. You know, Judas betrayed Christ with clean feet. This is how we love. It, it, if our love of others is our worship of God, then we say with, with King David, I will not offer to God that which costs me nothing. And the example that John gives is literally giving. It, it's literally giving at a cost, an expensive act of service, giving to those in need. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? This world's goods, that's, you know, the the money and the, the space and all the resources that people still think is important somehow. And so if you got that stuff, that's great. Um, but if you have that stuff and you know someone needs that stuff and you don't give them that stuff, then you have a different definition of love than what Christ put forth. The church should be defined in part by its generosity. It's one of the, the facets of the love that is poured out into our hearts. Christians should be defined as a people who use their spare rooms for people who need spare rooms, as people who don't have spare coats because they found someone who needed a coat. You know, they, they came to the right place. I've been using the common metaphor of fruit and trees, right? And the, the good tree bears good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit. Well, let's take a look at a description of good fruit from John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3 and uh, verse 9, it says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. Isn't that the same thing that John is saying here? John the Apostle. What does fruitfulness look like? That's what the people asked John the Baptist because he says an axe is coming and they don't want to get axed. Um, and they say, what do we do then? What do we do about it? And John says, give your extra stuff to poor people. And then a few chapters later in, in Luke, Jesus goes even further than, even further than an extremist like John the Baptist and says, and from him who takes away your coat, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. This is all tied up in what John the Apostle is, is writing in 1 John. When he's telling his little flock, his little children, to love each other and share their toys. He's talking to people who heard Jesus, some of them, you know, who, who knew the Sermon on the Mount who had been trained up in this doctrine, love one another, and he's guarding them from reducing love to something manageable and less than scandalous. And he's offering them a mirror to look at themselves so they can see, is the love of God in me? Am I walking in the light? Here's the mirror that you hold up. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and sh shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Let this hit if it needs to. Let the Holy Spirit convict where necessary. Don't be greedy. Uh, give yourself away. Look out for each other. And when you see that someone needs something, you can give it to them. Uh, you can give them what, what they, they need. If you have the stuff, then, then do it. If you have a spare something, give it away. And I'm not, 
I'm not just talking about doing like a Marie Kondo, like decluttering thing. Okay, I'm talking about being Jesus to people and meeting their immediate needs the same way that God has graciously provided all that you have had need of. James says, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. John says that neglect of a brother is unloving, is hatred, and is ultimately murder. James, in speaking of the works that the, uh, the, the right kind of faith produces, he says these, these famous words, but avoided words. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed, be filled, and you do not give to them the things which are needed for the body, what does that profit? That's also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith that does not lead to faithfulness isn't the right kind of faith. Love without loving actions is not the right kind of love. And, and this finally leads us to the real thing in verse 18. He says, do the real thing. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. By now you know what this verse means. <laughs> Again, you don't need to study it any harder. You know what it means. I don't need to spend a lot of time here. The person who says be warmed and filled is loving in word, but not in deed because they never gave away the blanket. So let us love in deed and in truth. You have to see this as a contrast to love only spoken of or even love that is only believed in. James says again, show me your faith by your works. Say that you have the love of God, saying that you have the love of God in you. Sure, that, that's great, but show me. Or James chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That idea of self-deception, that's in 1 John 2, right? We've seen that. People convince themselves they're fine and they're not. James chapter 1 ends with the new definition of religion. It's not the liturgy, it's not the rituals or the statement of faith. It's visiting orphans and widows in their trouble and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Caring for orphans and widows, feeding the, the one without daily food, clothing those who need clothing. This is what it means to follow Christ. And it's a lot different from what passes for love in, in our culture and in, in the minds of, of many. I'm not just talking about the world's culture, right? That's a completely different level of depravity. I'm talking about church culture. Church culture is still having problems with what James addressed, faith without works. The church is still in a place where we haven't really learned the level of generosity that John describes. We believe in a different kind of love that's more like a pill that makes things better and less like a towel, a bowl of water, and stinky feet. In um, one of my favorite books, The Brothers Karamazov, top five for sure. Um, Dostoevsky writes, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. Uh, the idea of love isn't the same as loving people. Loving people, active love is labor, it's work. In the same book, there's a character who makes the observation, the more I love people in general, the less I love human beings in particular. And I'm afraid that's, we get that, right? I'm afraid that's what passes as love for many of us. Sure, I love people, I love humanity. Or in the missionary world, you love nations. And here we love the church or even our community. And those, I mean, those are words and they mean things and, and it's shorthand, you don't have time to list everyone's name, I get it. But, but what about human beings in particular, like someone with a face and a name? That's the kind of love that John says is the evidence of Christ in us. Uh, Flannery O'Connor makes an observation similar to Dostoevsky, but more concise. She says, they think faith is a big electric blanket when, of course, it is the cross. John says, don't just love people. Find a person 
each other, the people in this room, your church, and then love them. Don't just have big ideas about, you know, peace and world peace and love and harmony. No, take up the cross and wash someone's feet. And, and you know, look back at verse 1 of chapter 3 and then use verse 18. It's kind of a bookend of this idea. You know, verse 1, it says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. This is why we love. Because we've been loved. And then in verse 18, we have our orders. My little children, let us not love in word or in deed, word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Pray with me, please. Jesus, you have loved us in, um, in extreme ways, in infinite ways. Um, we know that there, there's no limits to the way you love us. Uh, you will love us in eternity, through, through infinity. We, we've received a love that we can't understand, that we can't contain, that we can't, um, we can't even uh, come into contact with it without being just humbled. You love us. And Jesus, we pray that that same love would be known in your church, in our world, through us loving each other. Holy Spirit, we pray, pour out the love of Christ into our hearts. Not a love of word or tongue, but the love of, of substance, of deed and truth. Let us walk in these commandments. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand.